Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Isabel Knight, a writer, researcher, and lecturer on hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and related hypermobility conditions. She was also a practitioner of the Bowen Technique, a gentle form of soft tissue therapy, for 17 years. Isabel unfortunately medically retired in 2017, but she's the author of many books, including a multidisciplinary approach to managing Ehlers-Danlos Type 3 Hypermobility Syndrome. And she co-wrote with John Wilkes, Using the Bowen Technique to Address Complex and Common Conditions. Isabel first published the book, Hypermobility Syndrome, Bending Without Breaking. That became so successful, it was changed into a second edition in 2016 and contains five new chapters. She also had a narrative medicine and EDS article published in the American Journal of Genetics in 2015. Isabel has worked with Dr. Carol Clark at the University of Bournemouth, on research into a humanistic framework for managing EDS, which culminated in a paper published in December 2017 in the, journey of, in the Journal of Qualitative Studies of Health Well-Being. Isabel has been published in the British Medical Journal and has lectured extensively across the United Kingdom. Her credentials are far more than I can list here, but will include a larger list with the episode notes. Isabel, hello, and thanks for joining us today. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very honoured and privileged to be um, on your wonderful Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast. Um, Really exciting idea and great to generate uh, so much interest on the topic of hypermobility. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I've been a huge uh, fan and follower of yours for quite some time. Um, sitting here looking at my my copy of the Orange Book, one of your um, lesser known but still um, amazing books that I have all tabbed up and underlined because so much of it um, spoke so deeply to me. And it's that one is called A Guide to Living with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, Hypermobility Type. I don't think we mentioned that one in the intro, but um, really like the format, the layout. It's very accessible for some of us with brain fog. It's got a lot of pictures and great text boxes. So um, yeah, so happy to um, be able to chat with you about all things hypermobility. And let's jump in by talking about the Bowen technique, which I think is not really very well um, known, especially in the US. Um, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is and how you became interested in this approach? Yes, Kerry, I can. Um, I first got into Bowen myself, um, having had Uh, osteopathy and I went to this uh, guy um, in London and he said oh if you've had osteopathy of your back pain and it hasn't helped um, how about you try Bowen technique and I said "Um, okay um, fine anyway this is an interesting story because actually I was lying there and he kept leaving the room and I was thinking, I was lying there feeling quite angry actually, thinking I'm paying 35 pounds at the time. This was way back in uh, around 2000. So um, now you're talking about 70 pounds, UK pounds for a, a treatment in London anyway. So he kept leaving the room. And at the end I said, what is that all about? I mean, why do you keep leaving the room? And he said, Basically, um, the principles of the work are you, you're making gentle rolling type moves across the muscle and tendon fibers, maybe moves across joints as well. And in between, we give the body 
a chance to rest and respond to the work. And actually, when I reflected back on the session, he was absolutely right. When he wasn't in the room, there was more happening, essentially, than when he was making the actual moves. Obviously, I felt something. The moves are gentle, but you still feel something. Um, but then I would I was feeling all these different sensations in my body, like tingling, heat, cold. Um, and um, Fergal um, was the therapist's name. And he said that that will be um, just the body making responses and adjustments to the uh, the messages given by the the, the Bowen work. And actually, Bowen works a lot on fascia, which is like a cling film that covers all the muscle, tendon, fibres. Um, and it's becoming very, very important, particularly in connective tissue disorders. Um, you know, cling film, if you scrunch it up, it's absolutely horrendous to unpick it. Well, that's a little bit what like um, what happens to fascia. If it becomes um, injured or the body's injured, the fascia starts to become sticky or you get like adhesions, maybe after a surgery. And to this work, uh, along with a lot of fluid, it's really important to drink lots of water after a Bowen treatment to get everything moving again and for the body to make the corrections it needs after a session. So I was really impressed with how this work was helping with my back pain. At this point, I had no idea whatsoever about hypermobility. I had a little bit of an idea due to the fact that I was um, a very long-term ballet dancer and I had what was known as um, sway back knees or hypermobile knees. So I had a little bit of an idea about being flexible but no idea about the actual hypermobility, let alone the fact that there's um, hypermobility syndromes and then obviously the, the names that they are now, and Ehlers-Danlos, which is, of course, a connective tissue disorder. So I decided to train um, in Bowen because I was so impressed with the results it was having on my back pain. I'd sometimes go in absolute agony, and then I'd be coming out going, oh, right, who wants to go to the pub? Which is not, by the way, an ideal thing to do after a Bowen session. But I think that just shows you the contrast pre me going into a session then afterwards. I mean, not always does that happen. Sometimes people are very sleepy. Um, sometimes people sleep for a, a day or two. I've known myself to, to do that after a session. Um, and... I think you were going to ask me about Bowen and working on hypermobile people mm -hmm. um, and actually how they respond. Um, so I trained, just to give you some context, in 2002 to three, And then, as you point out, I stopped in 2017. Um, but I didn't really get interested in treating um, people with EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder um, until well after writing the green book, the first um, edition book that I wrote. Um, and I found that with this client group that they needed very little amounts of work and had 
very big reactions. And it was the same with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia also. You had to be very, very careful with them. And tiny amounts of work had big, big ramifications. So when I get um, wearing therapists approaching me for advice on how to handle the client group, first of all, I say to them, be careful about making sure they're really comfy on the couch because some of them have very, very, very lax joints and um, might dislocate or sublux. So if you're moving them, be really, really careful and make very, very light moves. The sort of pressure we're talking about is the sort of pressure you'd apply to your own eyeball if you shut your eyes um, and just touch your own eye now. That gives you the idea of the kind of pressure of a Bowen move. And you're basically drawing rolling moves across muscle and tendon fibres. And it, it will work at all tissue levels. It may help things like asthma, migraines, back pain, knee pain, um, gastrointestinal symptoms, anxiety, depression, fatigue, sleep. That's, of course, a huge one with um, hypermobile people. Um, with people with EDS and HSD, as we know. So anything that can calm down the um, very, very aroused sympathetic nervous system and encourage the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest, anything that can do that is going to be helpful in this patient cohort. That's fascinating. And it's it's such a great overview. And I think you've raised a couple of important points there, which um, as many times as I kind of hear these things, always having the visuals to drive them home is really helpful. Or in this case, even better than a visual kind of a, an at-home exercise, like thinking about using the amount of pressure that one would put on their eyeballs with working with the fascia is really a revelation um, because I think a lot of us really crave sensation and particularly you know, positive sensation if we've been in pain or that fascia has been tight. But also thinking about that analogy you made about the cling film and how when it's all gunked up, it's really hard to unpick it. And I'm, I'm just kind of visualizing, you know, doing a really hard massage on that cling film that's already balled up. Well, it's probably just going to make it more balled up, right? So, and that's Absolutely. not the objective. If we want to want to slowly and carefully unpick that it's I could see that gentle pressure being a lot more advantageous and I've also heard this analogy that fascia is almost like an internal sweater in our body and if you think of pulling like one thread on the shoulder of the sweater well the whole sweater becomes misshapen and follows that thread and so you know you wouldn't just like mash on that thread that you pulled to get the whole sweater to go back into shape you'd really you know that analogy about like slowly and carefully unpicking the cling film just really resonates with me Carrie that's a fantastic analogy about the jumper I really like that and you're absolutely right um you only wherever you work on the jumper is it where imagine you know we're working on the trunk and the arms wherever you make the move it will have an effect somewhere else on the body so I've had people who've had jaw responses when I've been working on their ankle and feet well how come there's miles away yeah but actually it does it it will go where you don't think it's necessarily going to go 
Um, and I've seen patients twitch, move, all sorts of things in response to this work. And it can also be very helpful for people who are highly traumatized. And let's face it, a lot of this patient cohort are because they're very startled, because they've been frightened, because their bodies are so unstable. Um, they don't know where they are. Their proprioception is completely skewed. So anything that can help just coax the body just to say, this is where you are, this is where you need to be, um, can only be a really good thing. And yes, it is a very opposite of massage. And some people don't like it because it is very gentle, but they have to wait and let the feelings happen. And sometimes I've noticed people, particularly with fibromyalgia, hypermobility and related conditions, are not very they're very not comfortable in their own bodies and there's absolutely great reason for that because their bodies are not nice places to be in so they just have to give this this work a little bit of a chance but seriously tiny amounts can have profound effects particularly on this patient group and that's what I found um, through extensive practice and why I still advise other therapists. That's very interesting and it it really resonates with me also, because, um, you know, in talking about how it might take some time for Bowen therapy results to to be felt or, or to really have that kind of flow down the nervous system and, and affect more. Um, and then talking about how sensitive the population is and how a lot of us feel uncomfortable in our own skin and frankly, very frustrated and very panicked often and that corresponds with what we were talking about a moment earlier about the kind of overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system and fight or flight, mm -hmm. and then the relative underactivation of parasympathetic. And I remember reading somewhere, and now I can't remember where, um, some kind of study or article suggesting that the amygdala in patients with hypermobility conditions was enlarged or potentially enlarged. And I remember that speaking to me because it feels like I've spent most of my life in fight or flight and like I barely even know how to relax. And I like it's like the very dramatic, like you talked about, like I can go days without being able to get good quality sleep and then be conked out and sleep for a really long period of time. So it's almost like that parasympathetic kind of taking its opportunity and, and going um, to another extreme. Um, but the way you've described this t technique, it just, it sounds fascinating. And I'm wondering what is the relationship between Bowen and something like the Feldenkrais or Feldenkrais, I'm not sure how you say it, method or something like craniosacral therapy. Are these similar or are there pretty significant differences? They're quite different. What's uh, similar in Feldenkrais and Bowen is you have this same um gaps in Feldenkrais you get some instructions um by the guiding instructor they'll say maybe you know to take your arm and try and get it up past your ear just explore how you do that and then it, you get to do the same movement in several different ways and then they'll say and rest and they, you know, they want you to completely just, um, you're, you're often lying on the floor doing this work. 
and you it's called a somatic practice but you're you're just you think you're doing so little and yet the changes in your body can be profound and again I found um, Feldenkrais to be a really really helpful um, form of work more so for me perhaps than yoga where I've been overstretched (laughs) although that doesn't that doesn't always happen sometimes people love that the being able to indulge in the flexibility but yeah field and craze gives you this space again where you have the pauses uh to allow the body to assimilate instructions which is so different from if you think about physiotherapy where it's kind of constant and you're constantly giving your body information um and doing reps in often in tens or fives or whatever else it takes it to a completely different way i can't i wouldn't like to comment enough on or feel confident enough to comment on cranio osteopathy but it is gentle and different to mainstream osteopathy Um, and i think most people find um they enjoy cranio osteopathy um and it's also can uh, stimulate quite a lot of different feelings and pins and needles and different things and um it can make you what i it can make you go sort of all gooey, what I call gooey, and you're like just all chilled out, which is really what I hope Bowen does too. And Veldenkrais too, in a different way, it gets you to think in a different way. And it's great to close your eyes while you're listening to the instructions, but the rest breaks are critical so the body can respond. Absolutely. Um, oh, the amygdala thing. Yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. You're spot on about that. That came about in originally in 2012 um, by Jessica Eccles. Um, the amygdala is where the body stores, I, I would only like to say a little bit about this, um, stores um, memories, often emotional memories. Um, the hippocampus is where the body stores most of its memories, but the amygdala is where um, the unpleasant ones are associated, like pain or some say somebody um, jumped in, on you and frightened the life out of you. You might be looking over your shoulder when you're walking down a dark alley for fear of that happening to you again. So the amygdala has shown to be larger in um our patient cohort because um, of these unpleasant stimuli and it's often um, the case that it will be larger in people who've got post-traumatic stress disorder Um, and there's more work being done on this and of course now we're starting to see links with the uh, autism and um, ADHD and TIC and Tourette's um, so neurodivergent conditions um, and hypermobility. And it's just so interesting how all these connections are starting to be made. Things that we just didn't know about even 10 years ago, because um, that was about 10 years ago. I think that first paper came out and Eccles has gone on to do a lot more. Um, and I wish I had that right at the tip of my tongue now to say. But yeah, um, it's interesting. Absolutely. And I I thank you for making that point about memory. And, you know, when I think of the amygdala, I think of being in the moment, being on edge, 
fight, flight, um, freeze, um, is the new one that yeah, gets, freeze is another yep, gets a lot of attention recently. Um, and it's so interesting to think about its role in memory and in particularly emotional memories. And it makes me think, is the enlarged amygdala that's been observed um, in some scientific um, cases, is it a chicken or the egg problem? Like, do we have more of a predisposition to be put into fight or flight because of the way we're constructed in, in our collagen, which then enlarges the amygdala? Or are we born with a larger amygdala um, or, you know, sort of complex interaction of, of both of those things, as I would maybe suspect. But it's interesting. Someone said to me recently, you, you have such good memory recall. And I thought, um, well, it, it's sort of true to a point, but it's really a double edged sword because I think I really have, um, you know, accrued a lot of those negative and stressful memories, which um, you know, can get kind of brought back up and, and put you back into that state. So kind of, um, you know, there's, there's, there's an upside to it, maybe, um, but it certainly makes life challenging. But anything that we understand better um, allows us to address it, you know, from a place of knowledge and informed consent, instead of from a place of uncertainty and fear. Absolutely. And I think, um your memory is probably particularly good if you're an attorney and also um that will probably be your uh, hippocampus will be your good your memory your functional memory uh whereas as you suggest the amygdala is going to be memory of pain memory of unpleasant memories uh emotions um fear and I just think you're you're right. We don't know yet enough um, about what comes first or whether we're already born with a larger one, uh, amygdala, or whether that comes later because of all the negative experiences that we accrue, not least of the fact that we're not believed or that people say, yes. oh, you know, you're just making what you're saying up or um, go away, stop Googling your symptoms and that kind of thing, which is so very destructive when you're told that. Um, and the only way in the end, I think, to address the traumas and then the anxiety of which we know since 2004, this has been known for a long time now, since um, the Spanish um, psychiatrist um, Antonio Bolbina, I think, yes, he was the first to suggest that anxiety was, I think, 16 to 22 times greater in the hypermobile person against a non-hypermobile population. And that just shows you how powerful these emotions are. Um, and it's not surprising because the, we have a body where I don't know about you, but from one day to the next, I have no idea how I'll be, whether I'll be functional or whether I'll be in bed or whether I'll be able to manage a couple of hours of writing or one hour or 20 minutes or nothing at mm -hmm. all. And that is really very, very difficult to manage. There's no uh, complete status quo. Okay, everybody gets off days, but we get far more, um, we have far less predictability in our lives, I think, than non-hypermobile people do absolutely I think that's hard yeah and I'm glad you raised that you know both of those points because 
I think those are such key elements in why we experience um, anxiety at what appears to be much higher rates than the, um, I guess, the average, whatever, whatever, you know, I've never met an average person. I don't know where these average people are that we always get compared to. But um, let's say an, an adequately, adequately connective tissued person but even that I don't like because who's to say what's adequate you know I we we have our own we have our challenges and we have our um amazing um gifts I think I guess in my observation but you're absolutely right in hitting the nail on the head with talking about the difficulty in planning and I've heard that you know one of the big components of a sense of well-being in life and this certainly speaks to me is having a sense of routine. And when you can't even plan a few days out, let alone, you know, weeks and months, it it becomes very difficult. It's challenging. And then you have the piece of the general population and even doctors, not it's especially bad. I mean, in the US where I live, there's very, very low um, literacy about Ehlers-Danlos. There's a ton of misinformation out there. Um, and so we're living in this world that doesn't understand why we can be relatively productive one day and then, you know, maybe having extraordinary symptoms, flares, migraines, gastrointestinal issues, really kind of head to toe um, dysfunction that, you know, many of us have experienced. And, right. and then you throw that component in there of not being believed, not being understood, Told us, being told to just get on with it, being told it's, you know, the dreaded, it's all in our heads. And it's not. I mean, it's, it's literally, you know, our collagen and our connective tissue is everywhere in our body. I mean, even bones are connective tissue. Um, and so yeah. it, it's funny, I think there's four types of tissue, what like uh, organ tissue, muscle, nerve, and connective. And so I like to say, you know, my you know, Ehlers-Danlos is everywhere except inside my head. <laughs> now that's a little bit of an oversimplification because I'm sure there's connective tissue in the brain and there's certainly lots of connective tissue in the face, um, which I know from having multiple sinus surgeries and all that getting infected. But it's really about, in the, you know, that's where I think your work is so important. And, you know, I, I try to get the word out as much as I can. Like, the not being believed and not being understood of what we're experienced is just such a detriment. And of course that causes you panic and anxiety and fear when you're relaying something that is very vulnerable. Nobody likes to admit when their functionality is decreased. That's a difficult thing to come to terms with. And in my experience, the people, you know, a significant percentage of the people that I've talked to with this condition have pushed through unimaginable pain and injuries that would have, totally floored somebody, you know, of a different connective tissue level. And, um, you know, there's obviously breaking points and there's points where people can't go on anymore. And I've hit those walls too. But um, I think all of this just speaks to the need for, you know, a, a way greater level of social acceptance in society. So our friends and family don't always have to be wondering what is going on with this person? Why do they look so different from the day to the next? But also getting doctors to understand the truly systemic implications of this condition. And, and I like to make the point, I mean, it, when your proprioception is impaired because your connective tissue is lax and your body, your brain's not getting a good sense of where you are in space and you have limbs that are subluxing and then you have an even less a knowledge of where your 
limbs and your body is in space. Um, and then people aren't believing you when you're telling them, you know, like in my case, hey, my hip hurts all the time. And being told, oh, yeah, you know, I hear I see women like you all the time. You're just stressed out and hear my labrum's torn and my bones are grinding on each other. Um, you know, of course, that's going to cause you to feel anxiety. If you didn't feel anxiety under all of those conditions, that would be strange. So it's like it's almost like the anxiety is sort of secondary to our physical and social lived experience. It's always there, however well you might manage it. I mean, people manage it through um, meditation and trying relaxation techniques and listening to um, classical musical. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard Max Richter's Sleep. I think that's the most fantastic piece of work um, and that all hypermobile people should listen to it because although it's eight hours, there's a CD, by the way, that's an hour, you get a sense of peace um, that's very difficult to find. Um, pop music is far too stimulating or and you, even classical music can be quite hyperarousal at certain movements or too emotional. Um, where was I going on this? Yeah, anyway, Sleep, um, the piece by Max Richter. I'd highly recommend that. If you're not into meditation or drawing meditations or cognitive behavioural therapy, um, if those things don't work for you, um, I don't know people find their ways to manage the really tough days, but What's not well understood is the pain in terms of chronic pain versus acute pain, and the doctors don't understand it either. So you get this double whammy effect of, but you look fine thing. And then what terrifies me for you guys in the States is the medical costs, because at least in the UK, I know the National Health Service isn't always great, but it is free at the point of delivery it is very overstretched at the moment since the pandemic but we do have it i mean we do have options to have um pay for private medicine and sometimes i have done and i sometimes do um but it does cost a lot of money and i really worry about you guys in the states um i visited dc once um when i um, was very newly diagnosed and in a much um, in many ways better state than I am now um, but I really do fear for you guys because um, I have no idea what it costs to see a doctor and I have no idea about your medical plans but all I know is that if I were to visit the USA um, or anywhere Australia anywhere really really far away that the medical insurance would be absolutely astronomical because of the pots and the all the other parts um of hypermobility that then in Ellis Danlos you know all the different symptoms that we experience and and for some mast cells which I'm only starting to get to grips with a little bit um there's so much to deal with um and I feel very sad for you guys that you have um, such poor medical understanding. You always think of the United States being far ahead um, of everywhere else. And actually, I think the United Kingdom leads um, on 
research on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder, as it's all now known since the 2017 um, reclassifications. Um, and as I was talking to you before we started, there's now ch um, the talk of further uh, changes to diagnosis in respect of probably HSD and HEDS, um, which um, I don't know, maybe it'll be a better thing because I know that it hasn't been a great uh, result for everybody and people who get diagnosed with HSD feel that they're second class um, citizens to the people who get diagnosed with HEDS. It shouldn't matter and both should be treated with equal um, seriousness and the management should be multidisciplinary and very similar. Um, so I have a lot of concerns um, and I really do, particularly about you folks um, in the States because of the cost of um, everything. Um, what Do you have comment on that? Um, would you like to comment? Absolutely. On that? And I thank you so much for raising that. I've, I've taken several notes in what you just said, because I think you hit on several really key points and just to kind of underscore them um, a little bit. Um, the cost of healthcare in this country is absolutely out of control and has been for my entire life. Um, when I was young, um, close family member was diagnosed with leukemia and his first week in the hospital, I think if I'm remembering right, I think it was like a quarter of a million dollars. I'll have to check again on that. But I remember um, as if it's not hard enough to have a child going through cancer treatment at such a young age, um, my parents were constantly on the phone with mm -hmm. insurance and just you know, fighting over this coverage or that, arguing, trying to understand policy language. And so I was really aware of that from a very young age. I think I was 10, 10 to 12 at the time that that was happening. And then with my own health problems, it's been, I mean, completely financially devastating. I can't, um, you know, I, I, I generally stay away from talking about my finances and it's sort of a, a difficult topic. And I think a lot of Midwesterners are, are share that reticence, but um it's been it's been extraordinarily painful and and especially when you're paying for healthcare that's not helping you and that that's actively damaging or you're being gaslit and you're paying this much i mean i finally went to the emergency room i so both of the labrum in my hip and then my left shoulder were torn um, unfortunately, I had a doctor who noticed that, wrote it in my records, but didn't tell me about it and didn't refer me on for any treatment. He just took me off of the painkillers that I've been taking, aspirin and acetaminophen. Um, and I, you know, of course, uh, deteriorated even worse as a result of that. But I finally went to the emergency room because I could no longer walk and put weight on that right leg. It had become so bad. And they gave me an x-ray and they told me it was completely normal, that they don't treat pain in the emergency room. I believe they gave me a Tylenol. Um, and then I went home the next day and I looked at the results from the x-ray that they had taken and it showed a synovial herniation pit, which means the connective tissue has been herniated through the bone. And I found an article from a Google search, I think it was the first result, it may have been in the top three, but really high towards the top, an article from 1982 saying that these synovial herniation pits are strongly associated with you know, the aftermath of a labral tear. 
So I went, I got to my primary care, got a CT scan. And of course, my labrum was not only torn, the bones were scraping on each other. And, um, and when I went to see the, the, this hip surgeon who eventually did the labral tear repair, he told my father after the surgery that it was the worst hip that he'd seen all season, worse than all the hockey players and the football players, that it was completely shredded. And so I went back to the hospital that had taken this x-ray and completely dismissed me and acted like I was a hypochondriac and, you know, gave me a Tylenol and, to- and told me it was completely normal. Um, despite noticing this synovial herniation pit, which is just as bad as it sounds. And they refused to waive the cost of the x-ray. They're still charging me for this x-ray that they took, that they completely misinterpreted me. Frankly, I think it's gaslighting to tell me it's normal when their own report shows synovial herniation pit. Um, And they wouldn't even waive the charge. And, you know, I believe my insurance, I think I just had to add it up for my taxes. I think I pay almost 10,000 a year just for insurance. And then additional, um, you know, uh, amounts on top of that for deductible or whatever. Um, But it is absolutely incredible. And you compare the cost for our services versus costs in other countries. And it just makes no sense, especially when you start to look at outcomes. I believe we're the most expensive healthcare system by, by, you know, a wide margin. And yet our outcomes on things like um, uh, maternal, um, you know, success in childbirth, you know, whether the the mother lives um, and just basic metrics, life expectancy, different things. We are certainly not getting our bang for our buck. And so I'm so glad you raised that because it's a huge pet issue of mine. And I just do not. And the other thing that really bothers me, because this, this often comes down to a financial discussion. I've heard people say my whole life, well, if we have you know, a, a, a free or low cost healthcare for everyone, then some people will just go to the doctor all the time and waste resources. And I always say, what people? Because the people that I know avoid going to the doctor until something is really extreme because it's such a difficult experience. You're under fluorescent lighting, you're vulnerable, it's fast. It's, it's not a pleasant experience. But what really sold me on the need and, you know, kind of Take, took away that financial argument piece that I've been hearing my whole life is the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S. did a study, I think it was in 2003. Um, I'll have to look it up, but it's called a dose of competition. And they look at, you know, what is the result of um, the the lack of a basic healthcare system. And if I'm recalling this correctly, it's been a while since I've looked at this data, I think uninsured people end up costing the system. So that means everyone who pays for healthcare services more in the end. And so if we're paying more because those costs then for uninsured people get amortized and put over everyone's bill, if we're paying more, shouldn't we invest upfront in preventative type medicine so that people aren't showing up in the ER with incurable cancers that require, you know, that's the other thing, the amount of money in this country that gets spent in the end of life, like the last two to four weeks of life is just an extraordinarily huge piece. And I do think a big part of that, and I've read books about this, there's one, I think, called Do No Harm, um, where they talk about how a lot of Americans are in the position of not feeling like they can't afford healthcare. And so, they wait until a problem becomes absolutely catastrophic and sometimes you know, no longer treatable 
before they're even seeking treatment, which is more expensive. So even for people that are somewhat, in my view, callous and don't really care about the the human element, which to me is incredibly captivating in itself, um, even if it costs a bit more in the long term, um, it, it seems that this is financially just nonsensical as well. So I'm so glad you raised that. And frankly, it's got me looking at, you know, I, I wish I could go to another country that had more reasonable healthcare costs because this is just unsustainable. And it's one thing to pay as much as it is. It's another thing to then be perpetually gaslit and told you're fine. I don't know how many times I've been told, well, your body mass index is great. So, or you look great, you know, there you go. And it's like, okay, well, it turns out there's more to life than how I look to you. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah. terrible. Yes. I mean, what is it about that you look fine? You look deceptively well. I get actually really, really fed up with being told that I look well when actually that's just because I'm mm-hmm. pasting a smile online, trying to get on with things and trying to keep positive. But actually, I mean, closer people obviously know the truth. And sometimes I, you know, I will write bits about that in my book. And I know that one of your questions about the book was why I wrote it. I can tell you that. Um, I think I was, at the time, in 2011, I was the first patient to write a book about living with, as it was known then, hypermobility syndrome, although I touched on EDS type 3, as it was then known. And the reason I did it was because I was so inspired, having just written an MSc thesis on um, hypermobility syndrome in contemporary adolescent dancers. I thought, hang on a moment, there's nothing here in this for the uh, patient population whatsoever. So I got my book accepted first time, um, which is very rare, on an unknown author. Um, by um, seeing Dragon Press, an offshoot of Jessica Kingsley Publishers. And I'm really, really grateful. And that book turned out to be a terrific success. And I think the reason it was, is without blowing my own trumpet here, was because I think I resonated with people. People understood what I was their own journey through my journey they 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 got it um I was able to reach an audience that way um and the reason reason for the second edition was the fact that the first edition did so well and then the terminology changed again and I referred to it as Ella's Danlos syndrome hypermobility type trying to um I suppose create um a synthesis of two conditions, which I sort of got away with. Um, even um, Rodney Graham and Alan Hakim, I think Alan did the foil. I'm not sure. Yes, he did um, for that book. Um, and um, here we are now in 2022, and I'm now writing a third edition. Um, and the reason for that is because of the changes in the 217 um, classic of classifications and um i've already been alerted that possible changes of foot 
with, um, I don't know if it's just HSD and HEDS or anything else. So I'm kind of holding my breath here and writing the diagnostic chapter last. But it will be a similar book with more chapters can bang up to date with literature. And probably I've expanded hugely on a lot of things that I hadn't written about before. Um, Things like convalescence and pacing fatigue I go into things like swallowing respiratory conditions a lot more detail um and the book is going to be big I mean it is going to be probably slightly bigger than the original version I think I'm given a hundred thousand um words but at the same time I was then offered a handbook for hypermobility um for HEDS and uh, HSD and that book will only be about 40,000 but it's going to be much more practical and it's going to have resources that people can download with a code from the publishers so that they can use again and I've got like a hospital passport so that if patients go to hospital they've got a whole care plan and I've written a care plan and I'm going to write formats for consultations with doctors um, and things like food diaries, pain diaries, mood diaries, all sorts of things. There's going to be a whole host of resources here. And I've got a fantastic young illustrator, um, and I I think that people are going to really enjoy her illustrations. Um, her anatomy ones are brilliant, um, that she's done for the main book. So... Um, but the thing is, the publishers take a whole year to make a book. So these books won't come out till 2024, the earliest. And then if there's going to be any changes to the diagnosis or that, that process, I will have to delay that till the end to write about it. Um, but I'd love it if you would be prepared to contribute something about the American healthcare system in the book, because I think... I do have um, a large readership in America. I think after the UK, it's the next biggest. The the States is the next biggest, um, followed by Europe in general. And then now the UK is not in Europe, obviously, but then uh, Australia. So it would be really great because I have no idea what it must be like to have to find £10,000 a year. Um, to cover my healthcare, and I know that um, I've cost the NHS hundreds and thousands of pounds through admissions, emergency admissions, and they've been brilliant. And as much as we um, complain about the NHS, uh, we are so lucky to have it here. It's free to see a GP. It's free to go to A&E. If you're in a bad enough way, they will admit you from A&E straight to a ward. You may have to wait 12 hours or so for a bed but you're going to be seen to you will be looked after you'll be given medicine you will be given scans if they needed you'll be given bloods you'll have access to other specialists if need be at the admission um so i am well very grateful to the nhs as i say i do see experts um privately when i can afford to um, and like you, I'm not working, uh, at least I, I had to stop as a Bowen therapist because my condition has changed a lot over the last 10 years. And it was too difficult, especially with severe digestive problems, to work 
with patients and be leaving the room I couldn't do that you know for uh, and leave people so I very abruptly decided to stop working but I've written two other books which are top secret but one of them well maybe I'll blow this slightly but they are ones called the body nobody believes and I do want um, that to be published and that's my true story and then the other book not that the uh, the other books aren't true they are true mm-hmm. story they are true but they are properly referenced whereas the other book is in a different type of genre a type mm-hmm. of narrative medicine genre and the other book I've written is about 40,000 words and is about the NHS and um, the system in general and even though um, American people might not be so interested in this it's it's a little bit like um a a bird's eye view of the nhs and what happens when you go through a and e an ambulance gp seeing a consultant having a surgery being on a ward what hospital foods like all that sort of thing um the practicalities of hospital but my books are very much about the management of this multi-systemic condition because let's face it EDS does affect every bodily system and even with those with HSD I really don't want them to feel any less loved here because I think they suffer just as much just because of a name change even if we forgot the names and anybody who was diagnosed before 2017 can forget they can go with what they were diagnosed with so um i i do want um and i have maintained that i want them to be as cherished as those with heds and some people do suggest that they are one in the same condition so i wonder if these new diagnostics whatever this uh change is whether that's going to take this into account a little bit more but who Absolutely. Knows? You hit on so many good points. And again, to just um, underline a little bit, first of all, I would be, it would be my pleasure to write that chapter on the American healthcare system. This is something I unfortunately know too much about, and it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I think it's, I mean, frankly, I, I think it's a human rights issue, but I also think having a functional healthcare sy- yeah. system is crucial to having a functioning economy. Um, so for, for those who are more swayed by the financial type arguments, I think that that case is there as well. Um, I, I think it's very important telling that story of the NA, at the NHS and, and getting that out there because I've been hearing whispers for some time that there are efforts to privatize the NHS and make it more like the American system. It's starting. It's very much starting to happen. You can see privatisation going on via the back door all the time. In fact, Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic, some of the private hospitals are allowing NHS people to come in for surgeries because of the six million we have on a waiting list for surgeries. Um, Last month, I had a catastrophe with sciatica, and I mean a screaming catastrophe, And I was in hospital for a week, which I actually didn't anticipate whatsoever. I thought they would just send me home and say, uh, you're just going to have to suck it up. But actually, they admitted me um, and they were really, really good. This is my local hospital. It's a a small hospital, 
um, very small um, compared to another one I can think of in Southland where I attend, where um, which is about four to six times the size of my local hospital. But they all talk to each other, so it's quite useful. So the experts at one will talk to the other and say, do this with her, do that with her, put her on this meds, increase that meds, decrease that meds, and it works. But you are right. Um, and the cost of prescriptions has gone up a lot, although nothing compared to what you're presumably paying. So a short piece on the American system would be great. And I think it would be really beneficial for the, for our, our American readers. And I'd like them to, to feel included because I can say an awful lot about the NHS, but only what I know by word of mouth and for what I've read about the American system. And, of course, we're going to be a high user group um, because so many bodily systems are affected so we need nearly every different type of medical expert you can think of gastroenterology um, cardiovascular respiratory um, pain medicine psychiatrics um, counseling psychotherapy I mean you name it we need it bladder urogyne gynecology um, and then, of course, midwifery for uh, childbirth, so obstetrics, um, uh, orthopaedics. I could go on. It's it's a huge list, isn't it, mm-hmm. of people that we need to help us. Physiotherapy. Um, and I think and all of that so highlights another really uh, near and dear issue to my heart, which is the importance of um, people being aware of their hypermobility condition as early as possible in life, you know, at, at an age appropriate time and, you know, at an understanding time. But, you know, I look back on my life and a lot of the injuries and a lot of um, the things that have happened. And I think had I been aware of some of these things, you know, I, I used to love skiing when I was a kid and that's, that was probably not for my, um, my connective tissue arrangement. Um, you know, some people it, it assuredly is again, huge spectrum, you know, what works for somebody might be yeah. terrible for another and vice versa. But, um, I think getting that early awareness is key to kind of, you know, stitch in time saves nine, not in the surgical sense, but in the metaphorical sense. Um, and then actually getting research dollars, um, to investigating what works. I mean, it's just, you're right. I think, the in in the UK in particular, and then in parts of Europe, um, there has been some research, definitely not nearly enough of what we need to really, um, you know, get our heads around what's going on here and what can we do about it. But there has been virtually nothing um, when it comes to you know U.S. studies of any size. Um, I think there was maybe the first one on gastrointestinal issues a handful of years back um, that I think. Um, John Rodas was helpful in getting off the ground. But yeah, I mean, it's about getting that awareness out there so we can get better knowledge, better investment in in figuring out treatments that work. You know, unfortunately, there's so much focus on finding the genes, finding the genes. And, um, and I, I think it's important. Like, I think what the Norris Lab is doing is absolutely phenomenal. I think you know, we, we interviewed them a while back. I mean, they're amazing. They're doing some great work. They, they really care. Um, but realistically, you know, I just spoke to um, Dr. Heather Gray Edwards and um, 
Dr. Abby McElroy about their work on EDS in animals. And it really sounds like realistically at the point where, um, you know, gene therapy might become a possibility. We're talking, you know, decade plus, you know, in a, a big plus plus, you know, a long time. And I think we really need to switch this focus from being so hyper-focused on, we have to find the genes, we have to find the genes, to how do we help people now on earth that are living and suffering with these conditions? And and so that's that's where I like to see more of the conversation. And that brings me back to a point that you made um, a few moments earlier about the importance of um, HSD um, feeling equally included in this conversation. And I 100% agree with you on that because, um, you know, researchers have pointed out the problematic, frankly, nature of the 2017 guidelines. And there was the Toronto Good Hope Clinic that did a study and said that if you apply the guidelines, 85% of their patients would lose their diagnosis. And of course, there's the statement, if you have your diagnosis pre-2017, you shouldn't lose it but that's not preventing people from losing it in fact. And there's something very confused about the idea that in 2016, you could meet a set of criteria and have a condition. And then one year later, it's changed. And I think patients are right to feel very offended. I'm not sure what went on there. It's deeply confusing and disturbing to me, frankly. Um, But I think when you're taking away what's seen as a source of validation of someone's condition, Um, that's psychologically devastating. And it feels like very needlessly so. And unfortunately, lots of doctors think hypermobility is not only not problematic, they see it as an asset. You know, I've been told, oh, you're so flexible. You must be so good at yoga. Or I had someone tell me once, um, oh, you have low blood pressure. You're so lucky because I have high blood pressure. I wish I had low blood pressure. And I'm like, no, too low is bad. Too high is bad. Like, what? Yeah, I uh, fainted, hit a, whacked my head on a concrete floor. It wasn't funny. I mean, really, um, mm-hmm. low blood pressure is just as bad as having high. Um, and you're right. I think there we shouldn't forget the the uh, the smaller numbers for for whom um, hypermobility is at advantage. I mean, it is in the classical ballet world. It is in gymnastics, circus, acrobatics. Um, and okay, these are people are very lucky because they have generalized asymptomatic hypermobility. If you have that, no pain, no problems, great, then yes, it's an absolute asset. But for the majority of us who are symptomatic on are on a spectrum regardless of whether you have HEDS or HSD you are on a spectrum somewhere and I think even those with HEDS can be sometimes um, minor uh, even if they cross all the uh, obstacles or the 217 criteria whereas you can have somebody who has HSD by this new criteria apparently and actually be very severely affected and that is as you absolutely suggest is wrong on all levels so maybe maybe they're just going to look at it again and readdress the balance and look because I don't think it's gone down very well from the general I think it was done for research purposes and like you say the genetics fundamentally yes in 
40, 50 years time, if they can manipulate the gene, then happily, maybe happy ever after. But we're not at that stage at the moment. At the moment, we are very much at the stage where we need to look at what helps people, what drugs work what medicines work we know that physiotherapy is supposed to work but not everybody agrees um there's not a consensus for everything here but um, one aspect um i know that somebody in the uk is very strong about is nutrition um and how looking at um, our nutrition and what we're eating could fundamentally affect the outcome of our um the management of our condition. Similarly, um, having a significant trauma, um, mm-hmm. I mean, emotional and um, post-traumatic stress disorder trauma throughout one's life, abuse, sexual abuse, all sorts of horrific things, abuse at home, um, can also trigger symptoms to start and may trigger conditions like fibromyalgia. And now we're seeing long COVID and how some of these symptoms are mimicking things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, My mum, who very rarely gets ill or complains about her health, has had for the first time ever, she's experienced brain fog and fatigue since having COVID. And now I think she's really understanding mm-hmm. what brain fog is like and how disabling it is and how you can't even say your words. You don't know how to spell things. I can't type things. I can't. It, it's like my brain's mm-hmm. a treacle. And I think um, now that people, you know, are suffering from long COVID, I think we might get a little bit more sympathy because people are starting to understand how some of these symptoms impact on our life, not just the pain, um, but all the other ones. And POTS is another one. That's a really tricky um, and difficult um, beast to manage. Um, It's It can be managed conservatively, but um, you might need medicines um, for example, beta blockers or other ones that will stabilize blood pressure and the, the tachycardia aspect of it. But fluids and salts are important. And then the exercise that they so desperately want us all to do. But again, it all takes time and you only need one day in bed and your groundhog day mm-hmm. again, you're going round and round and round in the loop and you sometimes don't make progress. I mean, I've had a couple of weeks of not being able to write. And luckily, I'd done an awful lot in advance, so I was kind of okay. But it's hard having setbacks, and that's what brought me to stop doing Boeing because I became too unreliable um, for my own good, um, you know. And I loved doing the Boeing, and I will miss it. I all I still miss it. It's five years exactly since I stopped. Almost uh, well, next month it would be. But it was the right thing to do. And now my career is writing. And I think that will continue to be the case. I don't know how many more books I can write on EDS and hypermobility. But I've certainly got a few more coming out. And thereafter, I think my topics might change. So we might see me evolve into different things. um, And I will keep you posted. But for now, I'm still firmly on to hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, and I will be for a while. Um, but 
I have to be self-employed and I'm fortunate enough to be on state benefits as well. But without that support, I'd really be, it would be very, very difficult to manage. It really would. And then you'd have financial worries and it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's very, very tough. And I, you know, I completely, I completely agree. Um, Yeah. I, I guess I, I couldn't have put um, most of that better. I guess I'm, maybe less optimistic about the potential for gene therapies um, in part because, uh, you know, well, we probably won't be here to know about that. That's a big piece. And I also wonder, you know, I'm concerned that if we find the genes, will there be an effort to just edit them out without fully understanding their nature? And I think you made a great point that there are people with HEDS who are not only functional, but some of the most functional people in the world, some of the top athletes, some of the top, you know, entertainers. And so if we just, you know, remove that gene, you know, I'm kind of heartbroken looking at what happened in Iceland with the way Down syndrome has just been, you know, for lack of a word, edited out, um, you know, through the use of prenatal screening and um, as having the yeah. yeah, having the privilege of actually interacting with a few individuals um, with Down syndrome, um, I'm I'm blown away by how emotionally intuitive they are, how um, curious. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, technology has its limits, and we really have to consider things in context um, and 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 look at the the bigger picture of of nature and what's going on and to me the fact that EDS is so prevalent in animals um you know is a big marker that there's there's some reason for this um not to say that people with HSD you know hypermobility conditions HEDS that we don't suffer i mean obviously we we do many of us in absolutely heartbreaking ways but i think if we could figure out the social awareness piece and figure out some um, good ways about going about management. I think um, we could make huge headway in terms of you know improving quality of life without without going to something drastic. Now I, I'd still like to know what if any the genes are, and I'm I'm waiting every day for the Norris Labs work to come out because it's so interesting, and and I think we can learn from that kind of thing. But I think it's important to take a step back and and look at everything in a larger context and not focus solely on you know, productivity in terms of widgets per hour, because I think there's more humanity in life than that. Absolutely. I think so. And I think that um, at the moment, we're at a a really difficult time in the world following the pandemic. Um, Everything feels strange. I'm still struggling with isolation and the fact that it's actually okay Mm. to go out and meet people again. Um, and I think well, all the stuff with Ukraine and Russia was all rumbling around and everything. And then our community, it's a small one, but it's a large one at the same time. I think, you know, it only takes one negative comment on Facebook and, you know, you want to be careful with how, you know, people are handled here and managed and, um, I don't think that you can be 100% positive about this all the time. There are some days when it really is very, very tough having this condition. Um, And I hate all this Mm -hmm. separate stuff and this warrior stuff because we're we're not 
it's just I don't like it. I, I'm afraid I'm not a big fan of the whole zebra thing. <laughs> I think it's um, you know no, we're not no, no. actually. Um, the Demler paper says there's one in five hundred with uh, hypermobility spectrum disorder, HEDS, probably, I think it could be more than that. And there could be a lot more that are hypermobile mm-hmm. with no problems at all. So let's let's yep. forget the we are rare thing. We're not, we're actually pretty common. What's rare yes. are the other types of EDS. They are rare. Yes, absolutely. But not what we have. It's not rare. And I think that... Um, it needs to be about a multidisciplinary outlook to manage this condition. We need all experts to pull together in for everybody's sake. The diagnosis is important, but it's not the only thing. I agree about having it early. It's often missed. It's delayed. I was 34 before I was diagnosed, but the signs were mm-hmm. there right from when I was a little girl. Um, but it's, it is about how we manage after that. Um, and it is incredibly complex. It is a complex condition um, and it requires people yes. to communicate together, yes. the medical experts as well. Um, and we need to keep on shouting from the sidelines as well um, that we're not rare. We just need more support and we need the doctors to be talking to each other more and I know that's happening here it's slow but it is happening and I am getting less and less off the wall comments made to me by doctors um like uh it's all in your head I haven't had that for that's quite great. some time um mainly it's getting it is getting better here and I'm getting more constructive medical consultations where they're saying so you're seeing so and so and so and so next month and I'm saying yes and and this is a respiratory guy I saw yesterday and he said so you'll get these guys to communicate back to me and I said yes I will and then I said um hopefully then you can all have a chat and we'll see if we can make my respiratory thoracic outlet syndrome and my EDS all and let's have some improvements on all of these fronts. Um, but it needs a bit of everybody. Um, it needs uh, psychotherapy. It needs it needs everything. Um, it really does. Um, and I think there um, we've probably reached a good point um, to to uh, finish this. Um, no, absolutely. I was just going to suggest the same thing um, because I think it's we've got a good we, we've got a good ending here and i and like i say i have um two books that will come out for sure in 2024 what i'd love is if we could have a another um chat as um just as they're coming out um and if i do the other two books which i have got with another publishing house the ones i talked to you about the nhs and the everybody mm-hmm. um uh, the, I will let you know if those what happens with those. But it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Carrie. And I would love you to write something about um, the the system in the USA for me for the book because I think that would be really ho- helpful for all the United States readers as well because you'll do it much better justice. Absolutely than I happy to do so, and it, it's been my pleasure speaking with you as well. Um, you really give me hope that with persistent um, patient involvement like yourself, um, that the tide can start to change, even if 
Um, you know, the, the narrative in so much is kind of the, the deck feels stacked against us a lot of the time. And I think I just I thank you from the bottom of my heart for um, your advocacy work, for your amazing books. Um, and you're just a, a delight to speak with. Um, and I agree. I think this is a great um, pausing place. Let's uh, for now. I'd, I'd love to have you back before 2024. <laughs> that feels like a lifetime from now. Well, yeah, we can we can talk on a particular topic if you want to zone in on something um just so long as i have some head up um beforehand to to really research that particular topic i'd be delighted um my website if you want it for everybody there's loads of uh, free pap uh, papers to download and it has information about my books it's www.isabelknight.com and my Name is I-S-O-B-E-L-K-N-I-G-H-T. Isabel Knight is all one word. There'll be a lot about Bowen therapy, but that's because the website's um, been changed from Bowen Works. So ignore that. Eventually, I will get my website redesigned and updated. And um, in the future, I hope I'll also be able to sell books from home as well. But that's that's a future plan. But it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Kerry, on Hypermobility Happy Hour. And um, we've got EDS Awareness Month next month. So let's see what news comes of that. In, um, Absolutely. May Thank you so much. And we'll include a link to Isabel's website um, and links to where you can find some of her books. Um, and again just thanks again for everything um isabel knight it's been a pleasure speaking with you and thanks to all our listeners um we've actually just hit a hundred thousand listens um so thank you all for joining us um it's been a great you know learning experience for me and it's been so great being in conversation with the community um and as always feel free to reach out to us we're at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com if you have questions topics for future episodes um, or any kind of feedback of any kind. I really appreciate it. And I think it makes the show better. So thank you all. And uh, we'll see you next time on the hypermobility happy hour. Bye.